Well, I have in my hand a uh, Petri dish. Um, developed in 1887, uh, named after a German scientist named... No, Julian. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, his last name was Petri. But, but in and of itself, it's just a dish. Right? But depending on what you fill it with... In the science world, it's typically some kind of agar. Uh, it becomes a perfect environment for growing something, right? Microorganisms, bacteria, viruses. And here's my point. Your home, your work, your church, your community is a perfect environment for something. The question is, What? We have an ability to culture or grow peace and reconciliation. But if we are not actively culturing that, we tend to culture rebellion. And that's kind of where we find ourselves in the passage today. We're going to be going through chapter 14 of 2 Samuel and into part of chapter 15. With the big idea being, we want to culture reconciliation not rebellion. And what we've, what we've found recently in the, in the past few passages is um, a derailment of King David. Uh, and the past two uh, sermons that I've, that I've gotten the opportunity to preach, it was David's sin with Bathsheba, and then one of his son's sins against his sister. And those have been like dark dark uh, sermons. And yet there is hope through Jesus Christ. And now we get to a much much lighter sermon with only some family dysfunction and political coups. So looking forward forward to this one. Um, So we're we're just going to dive in um, because this is is another kind of rough text, um, but it it flows very quickly. It's not necessarily uh, difficult to understand. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move through it fairly quickly with just a few comments in the text. And then I want to spend a bit of time at the end kind of talking about how we can create um, that culture of reconciliation uh, in our homes and, and other areas of our lives. So here we go. Let's jump in. Uh, chapter 14, verse 1. Now Joab, the son of Zeruiah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, Pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been mourning many days for the dead. Go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. Now, where we left off our story uh, last week was that King David had a number of different sons, and one of them... Uh, Amnon abused his uh, Absalom's sister. Uh, Absalom was not happy about it. None of us should have been happy about it. And Absalom, after a couple of years, decided to do something about it and killed his brother. Uh, David was distraught. He was grieved over all of this, um, appropriately so. And where we left off was David wanted to go see Absalom. Right? He had he had spent. A long period of time mourning the loss of his son Amnon, um, even though he was kind of a jack wagon. But he, he was mourning the loss of his son and wanting to go see Absalom. And where we left off was he wanted to and 
didn't. Right? Great ending. Um, he wanted to and didn't. Enter in Joab, who was David's nephew. And Joab is a really fascinating, interesting, complex character. He, he acted in many ways that served David. Uh, sometimes at David's request. Sometimes because that's just what he thought he should do for David. Um, including murder in both instances. So, again, complicated character. And here he begins masterminding this plan to get Absalom back and push this peacemaking process, right? He is the one who has to step in, apparently, and, and push for reconciliation. And he comes up with this plan using a, a woman and asks her to pretend um, to act out the story, right? She should get an Oscar for what she does in this passage. Um, it, it ends up being fairly effective, but, um, but it's kind of this ruse, um, that David has, uh, has experienced before as well. So let's continue uh, looking at what this woman uh, says. The scripture says in verse 4, When the woman of Tekoa came to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and paid homage and said, Save me, O king. And the king said to her, What is your trouble? She answered, Alas, I am a widow. My husband is dead. And your servant had two sons, and they quarreled with one another in the field. There was no one to separate them, and one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole clan has risen against your servant, and they say, Give up the man who struck his brother, that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. And so they would destroy the heir also. Thus they would quench my coal that is left and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. It's an interesting backdrop of this whole story and interesting moral quandaries. Uh, a lot of things in scripture are descriptive instead of prescriptive. So I'm not necessarily advocating for you know, a deceitful story to get to a point, um, especially if the other person doesn't know that it is just a story. Um, but you almost um, you see this pattern a couple of times in scripture with regard to David. Uh, the prophet Nathan, after David had sinned with Bathsheba and tried to cover it up, uh, the prophet Nathan comes in with a story about sheep, and, and David gets very angry appropriately at that story, and then Nathan says, you're that guy, right? And David says, oh, <laughs> yeah, okay, point taken. And so here we have another story, right, um, where where some people are trying to point out something um, about David and his life and maybe what should happen, at least according to their perspective. And uh, so they come up with this complicated story about a, a woman who has two sons and one of them kills the other. Now, what do you do? Right? This, in, in uh, Jewish law, there is a life for life. So the clan coming and saying uh, one brother killed the other, then we need to take his life, right? This is a community sin. It affects the community. It rips the fabric of the whole community. When, when something like this happens, we need to make it right. And, and it, was a, it was a big deal, like more than just tax implications, right? 
Um, this, was, this was a legacy. This was a family name. And it would have been a scary position for a widow to be in as well with no one necessarily to take care of her when she is old. So David responds, the king said to the woman, go to your house and I will give orders concerning you. In other words, I think he's trying to say, yeah, I'll get, I'll get back to you. Um, but she persists. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, on me be the guilt, my lord, the king, and on my father's house, let the king and his throne be guiltless. The king said, if anyone says anything to you, bring him to me and he shall never touch you again. So she keeps pressing a little bit. Right? She wants a decision now and peace of mind before she goes back. And she seems to, to try and take on whatever responsibility might come from the king's decisions. Right? If, he, if he adjusted justice, so to speak, uh, a little bit in this case, um, she wants the king to be, to be faultless. Um, but she certainly wants a particular decision. Then she said, please let the king invoke the Lord your God that the avenger of blood kill no more and my son be not destroyed. He said, as the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. So no more shaving, apparently. Uh, David seems to be speaking on behalf of the Lord for her. Um, And we are introduced to this really interesting uh, character, the avenger of blood, or this role. Uh, Genesis 9.6 speaks of a blood avenger just kind of in a general sense. Um, And then Numbers chapter 35 details how this is supposed to play out, where typically a next of kin or or maybe in this case the community, the clan, uh, part of the tribe, was to uh, appoint someone to avenge murder, right? to avenge death so that justice can be uh, continued. And in this case, it appears to be a community decision, um, again, because it, it does affect, it affects the community. Um, David says, right, David says, your son will be safe, which is interesting. And I, I'm curious about his confidence, seeing as how he can't seem to manage even his own household. But, but he is uh, confident that, um, that her son is going to be safe, and he's made a decision about this family. In verse 12, we continue reading, then the woman said, please let your servant speak a word to my Lord, the king. (laughs) Right? So we're not done yet. He says, speak. And the woman said, why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again. This is talking about Absalom. We must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life, and he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Right? This, is, this is a bold conversation from this woman to turn the conversation. Again, David's probably experiencing some deja vu uh, from his conversation with the prophet Nathan um, when that happened with another fake story. And, and the woman highlights some interesting characteristics about God. Um, again, this is, a, this is an interesting story in the sense that um, the, the other one with the prophet Nathan, it was, it was certainly uh, directed by God and, and sent to convict David of sin. Um, this story, we see Joab behind it. Is God behind it? It's an interesting question. 
And we never really quite find the answer in, at least directly, in the text, although we can pull some different principles out of it. Um, but the woman, the woman talks about um, God and how God preserves life and seems to allow for grace within this system. Right? And so as David responds to the story, um, he responds the way they want him to, and in so doing, sort of indicts himself for his inconsistent actions with his own family. It appears that many in Israel want Absalom back. Uh, we'll get some reasons maybe why a little bit later. Um, but, uh, but David's inconsistency inconsistency with his uh, sons does bring up some other quandaries as well. Right? For instance, um, if grace were extended to Absalom, um, how would Amnon's family feel about that? Again, I'm not saying that we should feel sorry for Amnon. Um, he got a couple of years of grace before Absalom took matters into his own hands and killed him. Um, and I'm not saying that Amnon deserves grace, um, but isn't that kind of the point? None of, none of us deserve grace. That's the whole nature of the word, right? Grace is something we, is, it's undeserved favor, undeserved merit. And so understanding that, uh, you know, even understanding that, I think we, we tend to be very upset about unequal distribution of grace, Right? The cry of unfair, if somebody has something that we don't, um, or if grace is extended to someone else, even though nothing is, nothing is owed us at all, um, we, we tend to be unhappy with that. And maybe that, among many other issues, is what was paralyzing David in his inaction. As we continue reading, it says, Now I have come to say this to my lord the king. This is still the woman talking. Because the people have made me afraid, and your servant thought, I will speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his servant. For the king will hear and deliver his servant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the heritage of God. And your servant thought, The word of my lord the king will set me at rest. For my lord the king is like the angel of God to discern good and evil. The Lord your God be with you. Then the king answered the woman, Do not hide from me anything I ask you. And the woman said, Let my lord the king speak. The king said, Is the hand of Joab uh, with you in all this? Right? He smells something a little bit uh, funny. The woman answered and said, As surely as you live, my lord the king, one cannot turn to the right hand or the left from anything that my lord the king has said. It was your servant Joab who commanded me. It was he who put all these words in the mouth of your servant. In order to change the course of things, your servant Joab did this. But my Lord has wisdom like the wisdom of the angel of God to know all things that are on the earth. Moral of the story, flattery will get you everywhere, apparently. right? She lays it on very thick, and it seems to work. Uh, she compares David a couple of times to the angel of God and appealing to his wisdom and his, his discernment, which, again, um, in many times when he's following God, he exhibits those characteristics. Now, um, since his sin with Bathsheba, not quite as much. Then the king said to Joab, Behold, now I grant this. Go, bring back the young man Absalom. 
And Joab fell on his face to the ground and paid homage and blessed the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord the king, in that the king has granted the request of his servant. Okay, so it's, it's a go uh, to bring Absalom back, sort of. In verse 23, so Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. Joab is incredibly grateful, right? His plan worked. Um, Everything happened as it was supposed to, kind of. Because David seems only partly ready for reconciliation. Did you notice that he said, bring the young man Absalom back? Again, is it conspicuous that he didn't say, bring my son Absalom back? Maybe. David's still hurt. He's easing back into it. and, And he brings Absalom back into Jerusalem, but doesn't want to see him. Now, we kind of shift gears a little bit. So that's, that's that story. We shift gears a little bit in this passage to a description of Absalom and his activities uh, once he's back in Jerusalem. So in verse 25, we read, Now in all Israel there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it, when it was heavy on him, he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head, 200 shekels, by the king's weight. That's like anywhere from like two to six pounds, just in case you were wondering. There were born to Absalom three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was a beautiful woman. Now, as we're reading a description of one of the princes of Israel, right, one of David's son, um, maybe next-ish in line, maybe not considering some of his actions in the past few years. Um, Not entirely sure there, but maybe one of the favorites of Israel. Um, And it it almost makes me have a little bit of a flashback to Saul, right? Israel's first king, who was chosen basically because he was pretty good looking and tall, which are fantastic characteristics. But... um, Right? I'm, I'm starting to feel a little uh, inadequate about Absalom because he could probably like grow a beard too in less than a year and a half. But, um, but point being, is, is, this, is this the leader that Israel wants? Is this the kind of leader that Israel deserves? Right, Somebody who's, who's just good looking and has a luxurious mop. Right? Is, that, is that what they're after? They just want... Somebody to look good for them. We'll have to keep reading, I guess, to figure out that long answer in hundreds of years of history. Um, but I also want to point out in verse 27, it's a very interesting, tiny genealogy. And there are a couple different things that are interesting about this. I don't know, I don't know when his daughter was born, um, but his daughter was named Tamar. Um, Maybe, I mean, 
There's a lot of there's a lot of girl names. His sister, who was abused, was named Tamar. Again, I don't know the timeline of, of when she was born. Did he name it after her um, because of that incident, or maybe before? I don't know. But it's interesting that she is named. Um, Whereas typically men in genealogies would be named because that family line typically ran through the, through the men. None of his sons are named. And in fact, later on in 2 Samuel, uh, he makes a statement that he doesn't have a son. And so one wonders whether, whether his sons died early um, or not. But there are some events in his life that were, that were really impactful and seem to alter um, the course of his life. And I think that Amnon's sin uh, was certainly one of those things. So Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. Two years. Then Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king. But Joab would not come to him. And he sent a second time, but Joab would not come. Then he said to his servant, See, Joab's field is next to mine, and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servant set the field on fire. Then Joab arose and went to Absalom at his house and said to him, Why have your servant set my field on fire? That's a fair question. Uh, Unfortunately, although geographically closer to reconciliation, David and Absalom still seem about as relationally distant as before. Joab has been the go-between. He has the ear of David. He has the ear of Absalom. And again, I I don't even know why he was so interested in this reconciliation process of bringing Absalom back. Uh, Maybe it suited him. Maybe it suited Joab, thinking about the next king, or who knows. Um, But it also appears that he maybe stepped back from this. Either once he knew that it wasn't as advantageous for him, to be buddies with Absalom, or maybe he was just like, I did my part, I can't do much more. Um, So he doesn't respond to Absalom, even after he asks nicely twice. So he does the, you know, Absalom does the next logical thing, which is to set somebody's field on fire. It got his attention. And Absalom answered Joab, Verse 32, Behold, I sent word to you, come here, that I may send you to the king to ask, Why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me to be there still. Now, therefore, let me go into the presence of the king, and if there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. Then Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. There are several options here for what Absalom meant. Um, He has been here for two years in Jerusalem without being able to see his father, right? So still being punished, still relationally distant, and he's kind of fed up with it. And so he says, right, let me go, and if there's any guilt, like if there's any guilt, right? He he killed his brother or gave the orders. Um, So yes, there's guilt. Um, But what exactly does he mean? Right? Is Absalom so desperate for reconciliation with his dad um, that he wants that accomplished, even if it means the consequence of death for him? Maybe. Or does he want reconciliation and, and knows that David doesn't have a backbone to do anything about it? 
as far as consequences? Or does he just want reconciliation so he can be free to do whatever he wants in Jerusalem and, and around the country? Those are still kind of questions. Um, we'll, we'll get into some of Absalom's actions that might reveal what he meant by that in a little bit. And where we come to is this, is this picture that could be a beautiful picture of reconciliation. Right? David kissing his son Absalom. They finally see each other and it's this, you know, the music plays and, and yet, and yet, what could be a beautiful opportunity for reconciliation, Absalom turns in to an opportunity for subterfuge. So starting in, in chapter 15, we start to see Absalom uh, and his character come into play. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, Your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. The years that Absalom spent apart from David seem to be years of plotting. Absalom starts acting like a king, having, having a chariot and horses and people to pave the way for him, like he's the guy, right? King is as king does. And Absalom ends up intercepting all of these issues and presumably making lots of friends by intercepting these issues and telling them that their claims are good and right, right? Among many tribes, um, as they come, typically they would come they would see the king, and the king would, would make a judgment, kind of like the, the woman in the story at the beginning of this passage did. Right? The king would issue a judgment, and he, he would act as, as king and judge over these different things. Um, but what Absalom does is he throws David under the bus in this process. In other words, David doesn't really want to hear you. Like, he hasn't even appointed anyone to hear you. But here I am. And he continues, right? Then Absalom would say, oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Right? His message is, woe is me. Well, really, woe is you, because you don't have me as your judge. Like, I would help you. I would be your savior if I just had more power. And people apparently fall for this. Right? I don't know anybody who falls for this, you know, like every year or every two or every four years in this country, where people come along and promise all sorts of things that maybe or maybe they can't deliver. Right? Shaking hands, kissing babies, in this case, kissing other men. Right? And, and, we, and we pick the one who's going to be most on our side. Right? We pick the one who's going to be most on our side. And I think the wording is really accurate in this passage that he stole hearts. He didn't win them. He didn't earn them. He stole them from right out under his father's role as king. 
And at the end of four years, again, four years, these are, these are huge time frames. At the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived at Geshur in Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. Now, I don't know what David was doing in those four years. Right? If he was just checked out, or maybe he thought he was doing such a fantastic job of ruling that no problems ever got to him. I mean, I don't know. Four years is a huge time frame. Right? Was he that oblivious? Or did he kind of know, but just did I, I mean, I don't know. There's lots of arguments from silence here. Can't, can't make too many conjectures about it, but it's just a, a fascinating timeline and what David might have been doing. And so Absalom continues this, this plot, and he asks David permission to go to Hebron, right, to pay a vow. And it takes a special kind of devious takes a special kind of devious to use a spiritual excuse um, to, to plan a coup. Um, I mean, what dad is going to refrain from saying, no, you can't, you can't you know, uh, follow up on your vow that you made to the Lord? Like, of course David's going to say yes. Um, although, again, a really long time. He was brought back to Jerusalem six years earlier, and now all of a sudden he wants to pay a vow to the Lord. Interesting, right? In verse 10, but Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, Ahithophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor from his city, Gilah. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. Whether they knew it or not, apparently. uh, Absalom goes to what was once the spiritual center of uh, Israel to to declare himself king. He's kind of reenacting some of the the anointing of kings of Israel. At at the spiritual epicenter, Hebron, even though that had sort of moved to Jerusalem uh, at this point. And he's bringing lots of important people to make it look like the conspiracy was bigger than it was, right? He brings a couple hundred extra people, and they're like, party, awesome, you know, vow, let's go. And Absalom uses that about perception, right, to make this seem like it was, that it was more so. But it was still growing, right? What Absalom was, was doing was growing rebellion. That was the culture um, that he that he was in. That was the environment that he was in, culturing rebellion instead of reconciliation. And so he continues to undermine David, the king of the land, God's choice for a king. Um, I don't think God had revealed a different choice at this point. So um, he's really rebelling against David. He's rebelling against Israel. He's rebelling against God and, and drafting even more people from David's service. So in all of that story, right, what we, what we come to is this idea, and I want to I go through a few principles of how we can culture reconciliation instead of rebellion. Um, because obviously this is, a, you know, this is a story. There's lots of things not to do in this story, right? Um, don't be involved in 
in ungodly political coups and th- and things like that. But um, but honestly, let's let's bring it down to our level a little bit more, where we're where we're likely to find some application. And I think I think especially in our families, uh, but I think also in our workplace, in our church, in our communities, we have lots of opportunities for reconciliation and to build a culture that appreciates it and accomplishes it. And the first thing we need to do is to model. Right? We need to model how it's done. Reconciliation, I don't know if you know this, but reconciliation is not a particularly natural skill. It just doesn't usually happen on its own. Right? You look at you look at young young kids. They take a toy. They don't want to give it back. Right? This is the reconciliation is not natural. Right? It is a supernatural thing um, that God allows us to do and and has has exemplified for us. But we need to be a part of that modeling process. Right? So parents, right, you don't have to create situations uh, in order to fix them. They'll come up. Don't worry. But you want to model. You want to model what it looks like to reconcile a relationship. You want to model what it looks like to confess your wrongdoing. You want to model what it looks like to ask forgiveness. You want to model what it looks like to extend forgiveness. Right? I never, I never enjoyed apologizing to my kids. Um, but there was, there was part of that, when I'd messed up, that was that was almost a redemptive factor about that process. Because I could remember part of this, part of me having to apologize for saying something stupid or or hurtful or doing something stupid or hurtful, I can help my kids understand what that process looks like. Now, did I do that perfectly? Of course not. You can ask my kids. Um... But it is, and I think there is a tendency, and I have not done this very well uh, either, there is a tendency for us to want to appear strong. And we think that appearing strong means not making mistakes or not admitting to them. My friends, that is not strength. Right? It, is, it is a weak person who can't admit their failures. Um, and I have a lot of I have a lot of room to grow in this area um, as well. But um, but let's em- let's embrace that and and model that um, for our families, for our coworkers within the church. Um, we have lots of opportunities. We have lots of conflict, and we have lots of opportunities to show um, what how God wants to reconcile relationships fully and completely. Uh, another another thing that we need to do is to initiate. Right? Hopefully, if there is a conflict, if there is an issue, that the parties involved want to do that. But that's not always the case. Right? Sometimes there's a third party, like a Joab, that has to come in and, and really get this ball rolling on this process. And rather than being resistant to that, I think we can be receptive to it and appreciate a fellowship, whether that's a family member or, or a friend or a church member, to come alongside us and say, I think we need, we need to fix this. 
Right? We need to reconcile. I think our posture um, of reconciliation should be one of expectation and hope. Right? We, should, we should always expect that. When we encounter conflict, we should expect to be able to reconcile. Right? And scripture is clear. Right? Uh, Paul, Paul writes, as far as it is up to us, right, be at peace with one another. Um, I get some, some things aren't, uh, aren't able to be reconciled if, if a party doesn't want to. But that shouldn't be us. Right? It shouldn't be us. We should expect and hope uh, for reconciliation. That should be our posture, not to be surprised or resistant to it. I think one of the other really practical things uh, as far as reconciliation goes is setting some timelines. Um, what I, I, was, I was struck by what David's actions communicated. Right? There, there didn't seem to be much of any communication for several years. What was Absalom supposed to think? Right? There's this gaping open wound and nobody's doing anything about it. And then when David brings him back, he like brings him back, but at arm's length. And I just, I wonder, again, this is a complicated issue, but I wonder what kind of difference it would have made if at the beginning of this whole tragedy, David had said, I need some time to mourn my son Amnon, and then let's talk. Right? We do not want to walk into a reconciliation process in anger. I get that. And while scripture is clear about not wanting the sun to set on your anger, um, my, my encouragement would be right, to, to set a specific timeline so that the other party knows you're ready to reconcile or you will be ready to reconcile even if you aren't quite yet. Right? So don't discipline your kids in anger. Right? If, you need to, if you need to hold off and say, I need some time to cool down, I'm going to talk with you in an hour, and we'll figure this out. Right? That's much better than, than, you know, we'll deal with this later. When? Right? When? If you need a few days or a few weeks or even sometimes a few months, for depending on what the hurt is, right? just don't leave it open-ended. Set a time to be able to revisit it. And sooner is usually better. Another principle is that of extending grace. Again, what I find so fascinating about this story is David was so quick to recognize the need for grace in this made-up story. And yet, in his own experience, in his own family, he was hurt. And it seems like he found it much, much harder, either to apply the law or extend grace. Again, complicated issue, but it seems like that that was very difficult because of the hurt that he was experienced. The way that we need to interact with people... Um, we need to approach others knowing that we are sinners. And we need to interact with people in the way that Jesus did, full of grace and truth. 
Right? Nobody deserves grace, but it is, it is a gift that we can give to others to show the love of God. But speaking of the truth also, in the reconciliation process, consequences are okay. Right? Grace does not mean a total uh, abdication of any consequences at all, right? especially within the family, with your kids. Right? Consequences are good. Right? This is discipline, though, not punishment. The difference between discipline and punishment is discipline is a learning process. It's a teaching process. Punishment is just getting back at somebody because they did something. We want to be involved in discipline. Right? So in this situation with David and his sons and everything else, should there have been consequences? 100%. Absolutely. And yet, and yet the, the consequence kind of seems to be the one thing that should have been maintained, which was relationship. And so instead, David's hurt, and so he cuts off a relationship from his son. What should have happened, it seems, at least to me, that there should have been consequences, but that the relationship gets maintained. Right? We don't, we don't read about consequences for Amnon. Maybe there were some. I don't know. Um, and that doesn't foster respect from children. Yeah, like, do you think David's sons had much respect for him as he sort of watched this whole thing unfold without really doing anything about it? Apparently not, right? I don't think they respected him. Amnon didn't respect him enough to obey in the first place. Absalom didn't respect him because he didn't do anything, so he took matters into his own hands and ended up rebelling against him in this in this coup, right, to undermine all of David's authority. The art of reconciliation with other people is, is to include those consequences, but to maintain that relationship uh, throughout, right? It's, it's holding your child when they've done something wrong and telling them how much you love them and telling them because you love them so much, this is the consequence for your behavior. And then telling them again how much you love them, right? The relationship gets to be maintained despite the consequences. And again, this is not a surefire way. Um, you know, there are, there are always exceptions, but that kind of, of relationship tends to foster respect a lot more than a hands-off approach. Um, and... Uh, Uh, we also need to, to complete the process. Um, partial reconciliation is pretty unhealthy. And a lot of times it can cause uh, as much, if not more, tension and rebellion because you, you get someone's hopes up, right? Absalom, you can come back to Jerusalem. Hopes are up, expectation is up, and you can't see me. Dashed. Right? And you have this whole emotional roller coaster again if you if you don't complete the process and i think the last thing um, before we wrap this up is to embrace the complexity people are people are messy 
Right? I've read books on reconciliation. I've done trainings on reconciliation. And yet every situation I feel like, I have no idea what I'm doing. Right? This is a unique situation. and These are unique people. And you see certain patterns that are repeated, but it's messy. And there's stuff that's kind of on the surface that you're like, okay, we can fix that. But then there's other stuff underneath that's like, oh, that's why you did that. And it gets messy. And it gets complicated. And yet, and yet, walking into that and addressing it is far better than looking at the situation and going, wow, that looks like a mess. I'm out. So we want to be able to walk into that process. We want to be able to tackle it. And by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, he's given us some tools to be able to do that, including one another and help. Right? Reconciliation isn't easy. If it were, everyone would be doing it. But we also have an example of reconciliation. And that example is God himself. How he prepared a way for reconciliation. He did all the work for reconciliation. He's the master. And the culture that we develop in our homes, and our, in our communities, in our jobs, in our churches should mirror God's initiative and, his, and the way that he handles reconciliation. I want to end with a, with a quote from the woman in this story. If you remember, she said, We must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life, and he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. If we think about the woman's comments in relation to the gospel, she's right in a way, um, and also unaware in a way. Right? She's right, we must all die. Hebrews 9.27 is really clear about that. Just as man is, uh, is destined to face judgment or just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, right? That's our lot. We all face that. That's totally clear. And yet, life in a way can be gathered up again through faith in Jesus Christ. Christ came so that even though we deserve to be banished from God, we deserve to be banished from the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, we have a path through faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that can turn us from outcast into adopted child of God with full access to the Father. That's the beauty of reconciliation. God did it for those who didn't even want reconciliation. Right? So the least we can do is attempt to reconcile with other people like us. <laughs>